Hello and welcome to the AFN podcast produced by the Aussie Founders Network. We're so excited to be bringing you our inaugural podcast of conversations with founders. I am your host, Vicky Clare, and I will be sharing our conversations with founders and accomplished guest speakers who will share their experiences and lessons learned for success. Our first episode is a conversation with Dr. Larry Marshall, CEO of CSIRO, who chatted with Jeff McQueen, co-founder and CEO of Accelo and AFN board member. Dr. Larry Marshall is a serial entrepreneur and physicist who founded six startups and has 20 patents to his name, and he spent considerable time living in the Bay Area. So we are super excited to be kicking off our AFN podcast series with Larry. He's going to chat to us about new and added value deep science-based innovation creates. Interestingly, it's one of the only types of innovation that literally makes the pie bigger by creating markets that couldn't exist without it. This truly is one conversation not to be missed. So please do listen on and enjoy. This conversation with Dr. Larry Marshall was recorded in January 2017. I would also like to thank AFN's generous sponsors, the CSIRO and the Australian Trade and Investment Commission. And now, over to Larry and Jeff. Uh, so without further ado, uh, we're going to have Dr. Larry Marshall, a very successful entrepreneur uh, who uh, is now back in Australia running and is the head of the, and CEO of uh, CSIRO, uh, interviewed by uh, Jeff McQueen, who is CEO of Excello, a very successful SaaS company based here in San Francisco heralding out of Wollongong. So, uh, coming up. Thank you. Come on up, Larry. I promised to have a beer while you had your wine, so on on camera this wouldn't be awkward. And then I realised I've got to have my notes. And that's going to be a problem without it, so... uh, But the beer's right there, everyone can I don't have any notes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, thankfully, you just get to do memory, I think, with this. So, uh, everyone, is, it's actually uh, a really great pleasure to, uh, to be able to have an Australia Day event with such an amazing turnout. Uh, this event's been, frankly, a bit over uh, three weeks in the making, <laughs> and we've gotten about 200 amazing folks here to be a part of it. And, uh, and it's also a really great opportunity, I think, to, to hear a, a personal story as well as an update for what's going on around innovation in Australia from someone who's very much on the pointy end of the spear as well as someone who's spent quite a lot of time in the Bay Area um, as an entrepreneur, as an inventor, and then as a VC. So we're kind of getting the whole package tonight, and, uh, and I couldn't, couldn't be happier um, to have Larry as our guest. I'm sure there'll be a lot that we can all take away from from uh, the chat. We'll also finish with a Q&A. So if you've got questions as we, uh, as we go along, just keep them in the back of your mind and uh, we'll definitely do a Q&A. Now, as mentioned, there's a fair bit of ground to cover and, uh, and I guess as per the introduction, as Larry gets set up, we've got to make sure we get this all, all down. Yeah, just, just for now. Put your money in the bowl and we might see more later. Um, so everyone knows you're the CEO of CSIRO, and, uh, and I guess the, the story of your, your journey to that point is, actually starts um, a bit before finding yourself in the Bay Area. So we caught up for lunch the other day where I found out all the, all the cool juicy stuff, so hopefully we'll get it again tonight. You said we were going to go into that. 
Well, only some of it, the early part of the day. Um, and, and I think what was really fascinating was, was sort of hearing how you'd, you'd studied your PhD in Australia and I was reading that you were a, polar, a prolific writer of academic papers and just, you know, crushed it, focusing on physics and, and photon, uh, photonics. And then you came out here to Stanford, was it 1989 you came out? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what made you choose Stanford? Because you shared that there was that sentiment of you, you do a PhD in Australia, write a bunch of papers, you get into a postdoc program internationally, you get your you know, sort of experience up, and then you go back to Australia as a, a decade-long experienced internationalist, become a professor and uh, wait to die. And that's not quite how it played out. Um, what, what made you choose Stanford? So in, in 88, it was the Bicentennial Physics Congress in Sydney, and Bob Byer, who was the Dean of Research at Stanford, came out and gave a keynote, he's a very famous guy. But no one ever bothered to ask Bob what he wanted to do while he was in Sydney. So as a PhD student, I had no fear, and I sort of said, Bob, why are you here? What do you want to do? And he said, actually, I'd love to surf. So I took him surfing for three days up the North Coast, and um, he loved it. And then he invited me to come to Stanford, and it literally was that easy back then. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fantastic. And, and so you, you find yourself in Stanford, it's Silicon Valley, 89. One of the things that struck me when we were talking is that a tech company back then meant absolutely a hardware company. There wasn't really ambiguity, was there? No, no, software was, was going, but um, you know, we were still in the Intel era. So deep tech, really hard science, lots and lots of stuff spinning out of Stanford. I mean, if you think about it, the, the, the internet wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Cisco. Um, which, by the way, broke every VC rule there is, the most cardinal one being never invest in a company that's run founded by husband and wife. And if you know the Cisco story, the wife fired the husband a couple of years into the deal. Imagine that. They're still married, by the way. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> that is really impressive. And, and so you were saying when we caught up that it was part of being at Stanford that led to a bit of serendipity and put you on an entrepreneurial path. How, how did you find yourself having dinner with, uh, who was it? It was uh, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great, a book that many of us have read. He was your house guest. How, how did that happen again? Yeah, so, um, so Jim was a professor back then, and this is years before Good to Great. Um, but he was one of the people, um, and Bob Joss was at Stanford too um, in those days. Um, but Jim sort of noticed me sneaking in and out of the lecture halls, and he said to me one day, Larry, we know you're doing engineering. You know, you don't have to sneak in. We actually, it's, you know, we encourage people to attend. And just because you're doing science and engineering doesn't mean you can't learn about business. Um, and then towards the end of probably six months in, he said, actually, it's sort of obligatory. Um, and there was this great course that um, Feynman from Caltech um, did in the last years of physics that teaches you about the social responsibility of science. Feynman was one of the guys that invented the bomb. And he talks about how excited they were when they invented it and how depressed they were when it was used. And so the course is really poignant because it, it, it basically is aimed to teach you that you have to have a social responsibility for anything that you create. What Jim's version of that was is you have to be responsible for the benefit, the impact to society, to the world of your science. It's not good enough just to make a discovery you have to figure out why it's important and actually try to deliver that as some kind of solution to the world. That's a profound insight. It was for me back then. Because as you said, you know, 
guy doing a PhD in physics is going to go and do a postdoc at Stanford or Harvard or Oxford, maybe 10 years of doing that, you'll go back to Australia and you'll become a professor. And it's a beautiful, virtuous cycle that's completely self-contained. And, you know, we need to break that cycle. We need to do much more with our science. We need to deliver impact to the world. That's the purpose of science. And so was that sort of... Was that a catalyst and a, and a bit of a kick out of the academic nest for you that led to you to, you know, pursue creating technology companies when you when you sort of discovered that and, and were presented with that? Yeah, well, I, I know from my dress sense that this will be hard to believe, but I wasn't that confident back then. And um, <laughs> so, so I did my the first startup I did wasn't one that I founded. It was it was I went in while it was being founded, but I wasn't a founder. And I love the idea of this one. It was kind of a stupid idea, as it turns out, but um, the, the, the guys that founded it had this idea you could use lasers to send information through optical fibre using light. It was a really stupid idea. Um, and, and it didn't work because the technology was way too hard, um, but we pivoted it and we managed to turn it into something else and to, to sell that company. But it kind, of, it kind of taught me everything I needed to know about startups in the sense of, you know, I, plan A always fails, or most of the time. Um, plan B fails, plan C fails, you know, but, but you never give up. You know, the, the only failure, the only real failure in a startup is if you don't get up and try again, if you don't have another go. And so that was a fantastic lesson to learn when I did found my first company, which also went through a whole series of reinventions and pivots and near bankruptcies and so on. And so you've, you've sort of jumped in. Tell us about the first you know, the first company you started, because I think I was, I was impressed to find out a little bit more about, you know, anyone who's had laser eye surgery probably needs to buy you a beer, right? <laughs> so, so the first one was doing this thing called the eye safe laser, and lasers are dangerous, right? They're really dangerous if they're in my hands. Um, and, and Brad, who's in the audience, who was a co-founder of a company called Iriderm that did uh, treated skin disease with lasers, will tell you that someone one night um, set off this 3,000 milliwatt laser in Portland and actually might have lit up the wing of an aircraft when they did it. Um, it wasn't me, by the way. Um, so um, eye safety is really important. And it turns out that the fluid in your eye absorbs a particular band of light. And if you can make a laser that will operate in that band, you can run at thousands of times higher power levels um, safely than you can at other wavelengths. The trouble is no laser naturally wants to work at that wavelength. So that company was sort of found around this idea of you could, you could shift the wavelength of a conventional laser really efficiently, really economically, and, and make a product there. And it's funny, that company wasn't that successful. It was, you know, a reasonable multiple when we sold it, but, but it's... Um, I was amazed to hear that those products, many of them are still in the field today doing what they did back then in really common applications that you may run into every day without knowing it. That's awesome. And so, that, was that the first company that, that you started after? Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then the second one, um, the second one went public, um, which was Iridex. And that was the green laser one. And, and that one, again, it was a, it was a really deep um, science problem. For about 20 years, people were trying to figure out how to make a really high-power green laser. And w what is it about green, aside from you know, not being one of the other primary colours that's important? Yeah, so, so um, lasers have this thing. Um, they'll, they'll do everything possible not to do what you want them to do. Um, so they're hard to manage. It's like training a puppy. A little bit like that, yeah. yeah. And so um, green turns out to be a really hard wavelength to get from a, from a laser. 
particularly um, if you want something cheap, you know, economical and compact. So back in those days, green lasers were created by things like copper vapour, which means you get a big glass tube, maybe three or four feet long, you put about 20 or 30,000 volts of electricity through it, um, you run it at maybe 15 or 1600 degrees Celsius to vaporise the copper, and you get maybe one watt out for 30,000 watts in. So it's not a very green product, even though it's a green laser. Anyway, um, what goes along with that is, of course, a big chiller, because um, you've got to run water through it. Or back in those days, you used to connect it to the faucet and turn the tap on full blast and run all the water down the drain to take away the heat. So again, not very green. And then you had another big power supply, about the same size. So um, it was a very high friction, high intensity, high overhead type product. Um, and what, what Iridex did was, um, and, and this is something else I learned at Stanford, you know, the semiconductor industry went from valves, big, clunky things that took thousands of watts or tens of watts of electrical power to make something, you know, like an audio amplifier. So it went from valves, gas tubes, to semiconductors, Intel chips. And so it was sort of an inspiration around Stanford at that time that, gee, couldn't lasers do the same thing? Do we really need a four-foot-long tube of copper vapour to make a green laser, or can we do it with a semiconductor? And so Iridex was the first company that, that really cracked that problem, and, and you know, I, I did the patent for that. Um, by the way, as an entrepreneur then, you couldn't afford a lawyer, so I wrote all my own patents. And you can still do that today, actually. It's not that hard. And save yourself, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of legal fees. Um, so, so that patent turned out to be incredibly valuable because it enabled us to do something that no one else could do, and it gave us a sort of a 20-year protection from all of our competitors. But more importantly, it, it shrank the laser from three big boxes into one little box about the size of a shoebox. And that was great technology, but what made the business work was um, instead of being a high friction sale where you needed to ship three massive pieces of equipment across the country that were really sensitive, so you had to send a technician with them after they traveled to realign them and make them work, this thing was solid state. There's nothing to align. So you dropped it in a FedEx box and you shipped it anywhere in the world. And so we were able to sell to a market that the entrenched competitors didn't even know existed and couldn't touch. The reason I'm emphasizing this is it's an example of a deep science-based innovation where we, we literally created a new market right under the noses of a competitor. In fact, they, didn't, they were so unaware of this market's existence, they thought we were a joke because we weren't, they weren't losing any sales to us. And it was only when it was too late that they realized that we'd, we'd created this whole market right under their noses. Deep science-based innovation creates new value. It's, it's one of the only types of innovation that literally makes the pie bigger by creating markets that couldn't exist without it. That's awesome. And was that the, um, the product that was um, you know, primarily used to unlock things like laser eye surgery, or was that the previous one with the wavelength? No, no, so, so um, corneal sculpting is a different market, okay. but if, if you have a... Hands up anyone who has a relative who's a diabetic. Got any diabetics? Okay. So, so it, there's probably a 90% chance that your relative's been treated with that Iridex laser because all diabetics at some point in their life start to go blind because of the blood sugar imbalance in the ocular fluid that irrigates their retina. And this laser enables enabled really widespread treatment of, of that disease. And, and literally, you, you basically blast the retina peripherally 
um, a few times and you stop the blindness, you stop the, you arrest the, the disease. What's also amazing about Iridex, if you, if you want to visit it, it still exists. It's in, on Terrabello Avenue in Mountain View between Microsoft and Google. And the Google folks that I know drive past it every day on their way to work and they're like, what's a hardware company doing here in Silicon Valley? And what's more impressive is, is it manufactures its product in the back room in Mountain View. It's made in California. I think it's one of the few medical... Oh, Brad, your medical product's probably still made in California too. But it's an example of really deep innovation where the, the value of the innovation is so high that cost of labor is irrelevant. Um, you do it here in California because you control quality. Your customers love the fact that it's made in California. They, it, they feel it's, you, you care more about them. You care more about customer fulfillment, customer quality. And so 20 years later, um, that product still is really dominating its, its niche in, in um, diabetic retinopathy. That's another characteristic of deep tech-based innovation. It tends to give you really long-lived companies. I was going to follow it up by asking about the, you know, sort of the, the cycle time when you were doing those hardware projects. Like every iteration was, was pretty painful. You're saying everything basically had to be like go back to the plastic molding guys if you wanted to change anything. And, and you decided, well, there's got to be a bit of a better way. So you decided to get stuck into very early touch screens before anyone else was even thinking about it, right? Yeah. So, so um, and that was with Iridome. Um, and I'll, I'll, where? I'll point him out to you because the founder's here in the audience. Yeah, there we go. Um, so so uh, hardware companies do pivot. It's just that when we A-B test, it takes six months. <laughs> but do exactly the same thing that web companies do. It's just a much longer time constant. And, and the thing that really sucked is every time you wanted to change the functionality of the device, you had to go out and reburn all the EEPROMs in the, in the, in the electronics, um, or you had to redo the front panel, the bezel, you know, to change the knobs. You know? So, so, so Brad came up with this idea of using a touchscreen, which was quite revolutionary back then. He also came up with the idea of putting a modem in the product so that the laser could phone home. And imagine that. I mean, because there was no internet then. So imagine that, the notion. How do you explain to a doctor that his laser is going to, independently of him, phone back to head office and, and, and communicate? They really were suspicious about why we were doing it, but it was an enabling piece of technology because it let us monitor the product, and things didn't fail in the field, we were monitoring them and we could actually replace them proactively, and that was another thing that was unique, because the thing was so small, we could FedEx it, you could, you could really give them a level of service that they'd never had before. Again, I'm, 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 I'm amplifying this because, you know, the technology was amazing, but it's what it enabled for the customer experience that made the company so successful and so long-lived. And with that, you know, phoning home and data, one of the other things that, that I took away from, from learning about it was you guys decided strategically to take the data and the insights that you were bringing back in, and instead of trying to levy a heavy tax on people to find out what was going on, you guys gave it back to the community and to researchers to, to work with, which you said paid really long dividends. Yeah, so, so the, the marketing team at the time wanted to create a sort of a, a, a platinum club and, and you know, you got, to you got the data. So we had data on every ophthalm ophthalmologist in the country on how they were treating, you know, we just had a deluge of data from these, from modems. <laughs> um, and the marketing team wanted to make an exclusive club and you had to buy into it to get the data. And um, we argued quite passionately that that data belonged to the whole community, not just our customers, but, but everyone. 
And, and at that time, it was like 97, I guess, the internet, internet was starting to happen. And, and after a lot of argument, we persuaded um, the board that we should create a portal. And what was interesting about that is, is that the very act of sharing all that information, all that data, um, got so much support from the whole community because it was such an unusual thing to do. And everyone knew we could have profited by it, but, but we shared it instead. And I think that's something you may, may not think of as being in common with open source software and the notion of collaborative innovation or open innovation. It really isn't that new an idea, um, just that we didn't know what to call it back then. And as a result, you think in reasonable part, you've still got customers today who continue to buy the product even though patents have expired and there's a lot of comp competitors in the market, but people are like, no, you guys are the, the gold standard and, and stick with it. Yeah, so there's a, there's a natural cycle for deep tech companies. So, you know, you, if, if, if you're a bunch of scientists and engineers, you really suck at business and management. So you better have a really profound, unfair technology advantage because otherwise you're going to fail really quickly. And, 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 you know, deep tech forgives a multitude of sins. So you, you screw up and you screw up and you screw up and you screw up. But it doesn't matter because what you've got is really unique. Um, and then what happens is, is by, by the school of hard knocks, you sort of slowly but surely transition from technological excellence to customer intimacy. And your customers almost fall in love with you because they, they love the fact that you have something so amazing, they love your passion, and they sort of love the fact that you're a little bit incompetent. You know, you're, you're, you're not that good at business and it makes you kind of honest. So there's nothing like going to a trade show with a bunch of engineers actually talking the technology with customers. There's an authenticity to that that you don't get at your typical US trade show. And so we used to, after a few years, we learned that was a really great advantage in, in several companies. But, but you have to make that, you have to cross that bridge to sort of customer intimacy, because that's the thing that really holds you in the market kind of forever. You can always be giving the customer what they need, always be sensitive and responsive to their needs. Then it becomes not about the technology, but about the, about the customer. So speaking about technology, the, uh, that crazy idea of shooting lasers down glass tubes, um, which for those who aren't as familiar is, is now known as fibre optics. Um, we're dealing now with the mid-1990s, all of a sudden it's the big telco build-out of the dot-com boom. Um, how, did you, how did you pivot back into that? Tell us that story. Yeah, so, so, so in 99, um, uh, I founded um, uh, two companies concurrently, one called Lightbit and one called Translucent. And it was, a, it was just one of those years where there were a lot of things going on, a lot of ideas, and um, got a term sheet from Intel for Translucent, got a term sheet from Mayfield and Excel for um, Lightbit. I think, I think at that time I was like the first or second Aussie founder that Excel ever funded. It might have been the first, I think, but anyway. Um, and then you're stuck with the decision of which company are you going to run, <laughs> which I hadn't had before. That was sport, a sport for choice. That was a, that was a tough one. Um, so, so both technologies actually I didn't invent. They came out of Stanford. Um, and the one that I ended up running was Lightbit, and I found a CEO to run Translucent. And what what Lightbit did was um, used tried, we tried to create an optical chip. Um, in other words, something that does with optics, what silicon did for Intel. So we literally, that, that whole notion of, you know, um, going the way that Intel did, going from valves to semiconductors, we tried to build an optical processor. And it was, it's only something that Stanford could do, I'd say, because they're just amazingly, amazingly good scientists. And, and incredibly, um, we, we ran into three or four major roadblocks where the VCs were gonna pull the plug. We literally offered the VCs their money back at one point because it seemed so impossible 
but Kevin Fong, who ran Mayfield, was a great investor, um, and he just hung in there. Anyway, about four million into it, um, we got it to work. And at OFC, the Optical Fibre Conference in 2001, we demoed this impossible device where we transmitted data a, a thousand kilometres. If you, if you put light through a fibre for a thousand kilometres at, say, a hundred gig bandwidth, what comes out at the end is just completely scrambled. There's no discernible signal. But with this optical chip, we could regenerate it in real time at 100 gig, and what came out the end was only slightly degraded from what went in at the front. And that was really an amazing accomplishment that the team did. And at that point, um, uh, the guy running um, uh, KPMG at the time said, this is the next billion dollar company, because we'd done the impossible. 2001, bad timing. <laughs> And uh, so that's probably the great segue to the billion-dollar offer tear-up. <laughs> so um, I, I won't mention his name, but a really famous VC who was on our board um, tore up an offer that we had on Lightbit. And to his credit, to, to be fair, a, a week earlier he'd torn up a similar offer from Lucent on a company called um, Qterra which was Fari Diner's company. Fari's now a very famous VC at Sigma. And by tearing up that offer on Qterra, a month later, Nortel bought Qterra for 3.4 billion. So tearing up a term sheet was the done thing back then. So what he did was the right thing. The only trouble is his timing was a bit off, as was ours, because the market completely tanked, you know, dot-com bust, 9-11, you know, the whole nine yards. Now, because it was so unique, um, about six months later, we got a $100 million offer from Avenex, who was still a really high flyer at that time. And he did tear that one up as well, which really pissed me off. Um, <laughs> and, and then it was, the, it was the start of a two-year journey of, of, of clawing and scratching our way through the, through the downturn to eventually sell the company to three. We, we carved it into three pieces and sold it to three separate buyers in order to get the VCs their, their money back, which I've got to tell you was a real struggle but it was a top quartile exit for a really crappy time. <laughs> so, it's a shame about the term sheet, because you could have bought the Dallas Mavericks first, but that's another story. <laughs> so, was it after clawing your way back over a few years of, of the hard yards, was that the, was that the juncture where you thought, you know what, I think I've, uh, I'd like to start a fund now? Was that the transition point, roughly? No, no, I still had a couple more um, CEO gigs in me. So I did Translucent after that, and we ended up selling that in a similar way to two acquirers, but for a much better return. Um, but, but I did learn that, that um, smaller rounds are easy to make big multiples on. So when we did Translucent, it was a, a 12x return to our investors. It's much harder to do that if you've raised 50 or $60 million than if you've raised five or six. You know. um, and that was a good lesson for the fund. Um, and then we did this company called Arasaur. That was the last company I did as a, um, as, a, as a CEO. We took that one public, and about five years after I left, it got into trouble because of the GFC, and you may have read about that in the papers. Um, but I'll just assure you, I wasn't the CEO for five years and, um, when, when, it, when it tanked. Um, but the fund, yeah, we, um, a bunch of us got really inspired by, this, by our learnings as entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, Australians are amazing at technology. I don't know if you spend any time in Australian universities, but there's some incredible... It's a Pandora's box of opportunity, in exactly the sense that I mean Pandora's box. 
So you can you, you can waste 20 years trying trying to extract something because there's such a such a an amazing array of stuff to go through. Um, but I guess we were convinced that with a with a big enough fund and, and really dedicated people both in Australia and in Silicon Valley, we could build a bridge from Australia to the Valley and really go mine that that sort of treasure trove of, of amazing technology. And uh, and the timing didn't work out brilliantly though, because you the the first fund of Southern Cross basically started deploying capital just before the GFC hit. Yeah, that's right. So, so um, traditional um, fund theory is you want to get a couple of later stage deals away early in the fund so that you can generate some exits early and, and some returns for your LPs. And that's great unless you hit the global financial crisis two years in. And later stage growth companies tend to really get into trouble um, in the global financial crisis. Did, did you know that 26% of Australian companies failed during the GFC? 26% wow. of all companies? Yes. Wow. 26%. Um, and, and, and the stat for the US isn't that much lower, actually. So it's a pretty awful time um, if you were in a growth stage. Um, but, you know, Southern Cross, the team really worked their asses off to help those companies navigate through. And we had some really early stage science projects in that portfolio that you'd think would have died during the GFC. But again, they were so differentiated that we're able to find investors, not necessarily VC, but often strategic, that would come in with us and, and carry them. And Southern Cross delivered um, a phenomenal NASDAQ listing um, just last year with one of those companies that had no revenue, no customers at the time of the, of the GFC. So very few Australian funds get a company from nothing all the way to the NASDAQ. That's pretty rare. So I'm quite proud of what Southern Cross has done, actually. Yeah, that's great. And you guys were part of the, the genesis of Blackbird. Yeah, so, so we had the idea of pulling together the, the Aussie founders both here. Because, you know, 10 years ago, if we'd had this event, there might have been six of you in the audience. And, and five years ago, there might and have been... And three of them would have been Cannington's friends. That's right, Cannington's mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, five years ago, it might have been, I don't know, 20. But um, when I left two years ago, there was about... Uh, close to 100, and I think today there's over 200. Yeah, so it's 200 registered just for tonight. So, so it's grown really um, exponentially. So we got this idea of tapping all of our friends who'd been successful entrepreneurs and kind of creating an, uh, an Australian version of the Founders Fund. And we pulled Nicky into our office in Sydney and we, we loaned him our financial services license and we basically helped him raise Blackbird One. And so we're all sort of founders of that. And then on the success of that, Blackbird One actually is doing really well. On the success of that, he went and raised a $200 million fund um, with um, Bill from Southern Cross and, um, and uh, Rick, Rick Baker from MLC. So they're doing really well. And you see a lot of them here through Startmate, which yeah. we also helped create. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I was still in some back of, the, back of the envelope kind of announcement math. And... With Blackbirds 200 and uh, I can't remember who else, but there's been a bunch of them. It, it, it almost seemed like a, a billion dollars worth of funds that were announced last year in Australia for early stage investing, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, last year was a, uh, a, a sort of a watershed year for, but but it made up for many years of really a drought in, in the in the in the community. I think the thing though that's um, you know internet companies and 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 you know, enterprise software companies, I think, will, will, won't have too much trouble raising money anywhere. 
and, and they're well enough understood now, um, even in Australia, that, that the money's pretty, pretty readily available. Um, but the deeper tech stuff um, is still almost impossible to fund. And that's why we created the CSIRO $200 million fund to really focus in that niche. Because I, I do think there's tremendous untapped value in there. And I, and I don't know about you, but, but, but I'm sick of things like Wi-Fi, you know, generating all their value, you know, seven, eight, 10, 12, 14 billion dollars of value outside of Australia. And, you know, we get the scraps that fall off the table back in Australia. We, we need more of that value creation at home. Otherwise, we'll never create an innovation ecosystem at home. And so you, uh, you decided you'd mostly hang up the, the VC boots, with the exception of Cyro's big $200 million early stage deep tech fund, um, which now Bill from, from Southern Cross is running, which is great. Certainly some, some safe, good hands there. Um, what the heck made you decide that you wanted to join a billion-dollar-a-year government agency, which probably isn't synonymous with agile in terms of word associations, and then find yourself to be a political football for what felt like, probably for you, 10 years, but certainly for the rest of us watching, a good few months? Um, it, it didn't read like that in the brochure. <laughs> So tell us about you know how how you saw the the opportunity and what you could do because it seems from the outside that it was really about okay here's a big thing that that has resources and the ability to make a difference um, what did you see and, and how do you see it playing out yeah so so um I I, I bumped into a young student at Linfield at Sara um, last year and. Uh, he was about the same age I was when I did my cadetship at CSIRO at Linfield in 1984. And I asked him, you know, what's different about CSIRO to a university? And, and he said exactly what I said to my CSIRO supervisor back then. Um, and it just struck me that, that there's this, it, it's in the DNA of that organisation. It's, when you unleash students into that environment, um, you know, universities are great, they're, they're fantastic, but Sara has this sort of magic, this, this ability to really connect into real problems. Um, and there's a, the, the, there's a passion in there about science, but there's more passion about solutions and impact. And it sort of always struck me watching Sara from afar, because, you know, John, Bill, Bob, Mark, we all, in, in Southern Cross, we all tried to do deals with Sara to get stuff out. But, but it was every bit as hard or impossible as doing a deal with a university. It's just really hard to deal with, with academic institutions to extract technology. And when Megan called me, um, Megan was the CEO, she's a phenomenal CEO, by the way, and she kind of quietly called me, said she was retiring. She's like, I really want you to think about this because this is a really, this could be like tailor-made for you. Um, because someone needed to go in and figure out how to unlock the Pandora's box, how to, how to untap the, the access that untapped um, potential. And what's amazing is as, as noisy and messy and bad as the politics has been, as, as messy as the media has been, um, the business metrics of the organisation in the last two years have been phenomenal. So Soros posted the first growth, first real growth in 20 years. Soro has shown um, almost 10% increase in global revenue, industry revenue. Um, hasn't seen that in, in at least a decade. So 
as noisy as it is, as much as people don't like what we're doing, from a business metric perspective, it, it's, it's knocking the ball out of the park. And, you know, parts of the organisation are, are less happy than others. But think about, you know, a scientist that spent the last 30 years working in agriculture, trying to figure out how to breed drought-resistant crops. Or You might not know, but, but CSIRO, the, the reason that Australia has a cotton industry is CSIRO. The reason the world has woolen suits with pleats in them is CSIRO. The reason the world has soft extended wear contact lenses is CSIRO. Um, so th there's a lot of practical science history there. Um, but imagine going to someone who's worked in ag for 30 years and saying, hey, I want to put you into a lean launchpad program. I'm going, to, I'm going to drop you in with a bunch of entrepreneurs and investors. They're all going to be 30 years younger than you. Um, you're really going to feel uncomfortable, but they're going to teach you things that you didn't realize you needed to know. And, and I, can, I can think of six people off the top of my head who are 25 or 30 year SIRO veterans who I got letters from after they went through our ON program, which is our science accelerator, saying, oh my God, I've, I should have done this 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And, and their, 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 their managers are like, what the hell are you doing? Did you brainwash them? Because they come back like 24-year-olds, completely re-energised and passionate, and they're out talking to customers. Get, getting scientists out of the lab is really, really hard. Um, but when you do, there's, a, there's an authenticity and an honesty when they engage customers. When they talk about their science, customers trust them. They believe them. And, and, and they get, when, when the customer gives them that belief, they feel committed to deliver. And that's another thing that's really unique about Sorrow, which is what the student said to me, which is, you know, when we agree to do something, nothing stops us. We, no matter how many times it fails, we get up and we go again and again and again until we succeed. And that's the heart of any startup, the heart of any entrepreneurial company. That's awesome. Um, in terms of the living through the eye of the storm, no, no, no. I actually, I, I kind of want to tease out the lessons or the insights, because I don't think many of us have, have, I don't think many of us have faced it, and hopefully we don't have to much. But when you when you copy a kicking left, right, and center, and and then trying to get some some sense of distance, like perspective, like what lessons can you share for anyone who finds themselves copying a kicking like that in the public domain? Well, you know, you're all entrepreneurs. So by nature, you're resilient and stubborn and wouldn't really matter what anyone said or did. You just keep doing what you're going to do anyway because that's the spirit of an entrepreneur. Um, so the, 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 the media kicking kind of... You know, it's a bit of water off a duck's back, I guess. Um, I, you do learn to be a little perhaps less honest or to keep your mouth shut. Um, but, you know, when, when someone's hammering you... So, so, so we made a small shift... Um, about an 8% reduction in our investment in climate measuring and modelling, and about a 10% increase in our investment into mitigation and adaptation. So the idea was we spent 25 years studying the climate, pretty sure we know what's going on, maybe it's time to actually try and do some mitigation of, of climate change. And, and that was really the eye of the storm, that was the heart of the, of the, of the challenge. And it was impossible, that, that message that I just told you in about 20 seconds, it was impossible to get that message out. Impossible. All media channels were closed. Well, they were, they were wide open. They just didn't want to tell that story. They wanted to tell some other story. And the worst one was getting on the front cover of the New York Times with a headline, Australia turns its back on climate science. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I've never been in a situation where no one really wanted to hear the truth. So 
at that point you sort of think, well, I guess I better stop talking and just get on and deliver. Um, but you can't stop. And I guess one thing I'd say for a lesson that Australian CEOs could learn, um, I'm not talking about startup CEOs, but bigger company CEOs, it takes a lot of personal courage and commitment to stick to your plan. And people, when they think you're going down in flames, tend to back away and get as, get as, far, get as far out of the kitchen as possible. Um, but you have, to put your, you have to put your neck on the line. If you really believe what you're doing is right, you have to be willing to go down in flames for it. And what's interesting after that is um, there's a credibility that you earn by doing that and kind of a respect, even from very conventional, very big, you know, ASX20 CEOs kind of watch that and go, yeah, this guy is really serious. And it's ironically opened a lot more business avenues for a CSIRO because we stuck to our guns, because we delivered on our commitments and our convictions. That's awesome. So looking at sort of the future and giving you perspective of the, the kind of Australian innovation ecosystem and a lot of the focus that seems to be coming out of Australia around that, how do you see partly CSIRO playing a part there? And then also, what role can the people in this room play um, with what we're doing to, to, to help advance the cause. Sure. Um, so, you, you probably, most of you probably know the origins of Silicon Valley. Um, you probably know about Shockley Labs and how uh, Noyce and Andy Grove, you know, got the shits one day and quit, left, and didn't know what to do, and they decided to create a company called Intel. Um, and venture capital didn't exist, so they found a fund manager in New York, a stockbroker, um, who created Kleiner Perkins um, and funded them um, and built a massive successful tech company. Um, you may not know that um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs also created the NASDAQ because the New York Stock Exchange wasn't interested in floating tech companies. And NASDAQ today, of course, is the envy of the New York Stock Exchange. So um, what's amazing about this place, which was an orchard 50 years ago, um, not a tech mecca, is it walks through walls, it solves any problem, and it reinvents itself about every five years. Um, and as, as hot as the internet space is, and social media space is, and mobile space is, um, it will get reinvented um, every five years from now till the foreseeable future. And it'll be something else and something else and something else. And there'll be a recession every seven to eight years, ten years maybe. Um, and in the middle of that recession is when it'll get reinvented, when the, when the next thing will get invested in and, and come out and turn the economy around again. Um, so it, it's the only place in the world that I know that has that particular characteristic. Um, for most of the people in this room, so how many people are digital entrepreneurs? How many people are hardware entrepreneurs? Okay, so yeah, so that's a dance. Um, it, it oscillates about every ten years between digital and hardware, at least since the beginning of software. Um, the reality is, everyone's a digital entrepreneur, whether you're doing hardware or software, because um, it's they're 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 integrated together, of course. Um, the, the challenge for Australia is um, how do we create value domestically? How do we stop the companies going offshore, raising money offshore, going public offshore, getting their employee base offshore? How do we capture more of the value domestically? And, and, and that's, I think, the profound question we have to answer because it's, it's the same question saying, how do we create an innovation ecosystem domestically? So in, 
1984, Intel built its first foreign fab in Haifa, in Israel. And it's the cornerstone of the Israeli tech industry. It's the wellspring. It's what started Israel in that tech industry. It's why Israel actually slightly outperforms Silicon Valley per capita for innovation. But does anyone know where Intel went first to build their first foreign fab? Anyone know? Australia. <laughs> Australia. And whilst the Israeli government act actively chased Intel, Intel actively chased the Australian government. Why? Because Australia, academia in Australia has an amazing capability in semi and materials and deep tech. And Intel recognised this. But for various reasons, they couldn't get the tax concessions they wanted. Whatever it was, they didn't go to Australia. But imagine if they did. Imagine how different the ecosystem would be in Australia if they'd done that. I mean, we would be Israel. So if you look around the Australian system, try to pick a company that looks a bit like Intel. And yeah, Cochlear might be close, but they're only in one segment. So, you know, where do you find a company that's in agriculture? digital and health and energy and environment and you know Syro was really it. So for me that characteristic, if that if, if Syro can turn into something like Intel, something like DARPA, something like the US SBIR program, and now that I've said those three things, you understand the three pillars of the strategy that we're executing for Syro, it's really trying to catalyze the innovation ecosystem in Australia trying to sort of nudge it um, enough to get something that starts to look like what Intel did in Israel, what Intel did in Silicon Valley. But for you guys, for digital, you're fine. You know, you will, digital funding flows all over the world. I, I don't think you have a problem. But if you're doing hardware, if you're doing deep tech, deep science, which is Australia's real strong area, um, that's the area I think we've got to really, really fix. Also, um, I spent Monday um, catching up with three friends at the top three US venture firms, and they're all shifting now very actively to what we call old school venture, 80s venture, you know, where VCs actually help the company <laughs> in addition to writing the check, <laughs> you know, kind of get in, roll their sleeves up, work with the founders. Um, and um, all three of them told me the hottest area for them is food and agribusiness, because they're trying to figure out how to feed the world. Um, the fourth one I talked to said water. Um, water is the new oil, but they're, they're focusing on water, but food and agri-business. So that's Syro's strongest area. So I think there's a good shot that we, we have a really, really catalyzing um, innovation, innovation ecosystem in Australia. And, and I guess the, uh, the community that's here, you're probably right, it's, you know, digital, for example, will be able to make its own luck, um, geography notwithstanding. Um, are there any things that, that come to mind, I guess, from your perspective, having been experienced here and knowing the ecosystem, that you think can be, that, that we can help with as those, hopefully, you know, early, early, you know, sort of shoots germinate and, and something comes of it? Sure. So, um, we, uh, we did our first M&A deal last year, which was NICTA, um, and Adrian Turner, um, who was an entrepreneur here in the Valley for about 17 years, um, Able, was able to twist Adrian's arm, admittedly, to the breaking point, almost, um, to come back and run Nicta. But he's doing a fantastic job. And so he's got a 1,000 data scientists working on machine learning, predictive analytics. Um, 
to kind of give that capability to the Australian system. Um, there's so much that you see every day here in the valley that could help shape the market vision that he needs. So I think being able to connect with all of you and get your perspective, you know, regularly on where the market's going. Because, you know, historically, um, Australian science has been all about science push, not about market pull. And that's probably the, that's probably the other cause of controversy around the SIRO strategy because we, we, we invested a lot in using science to... So we, so we used to use science to predict, you know, the future of climate. Now we use the science to project project the future of Australian industries and how they'll be disrupted by global events, including climate, but also um, geopolitics and so on. Because we're trying to get a, a, a better market roadmap so that we can invest in the right areas of science that the country needs to navigate that disruption. Um, in the digital space, you guys can really help with that. And, and in return, um, there's some amazing capability in that digital team. They love, they, they live to solve problems. You'd be amazed um, how many companies tap them to solve really wicked problems. So, you know, in return for the market vision, you know, that team would love to help you guys navigate some of your technical challenges. Wow. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Larry Marshall's dive into deep tech innovation. He delved into so many areas of vital interest to founders in the Bay Area. I would like to quickly share with you that the AFN is based in Silicon Valley and is a member-driven community of Australian founders, investors and industry advisors with a mission to support, build and elevate the role and impact of the Australian tech community globally. And for more information on how to become an AFN member and to find out about our next events, please go to www.aussiefounders.org.